I'd like to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. We're going to be looking at Proverbs 27, verses 9 to 16 this morning. Proverbs 27, verses 9 to 16. As you're turning in your Bibles, I'll start by saying this morning that there is probably no greater joy in life than in relationships with your family and with your friends. I would suspect that you would agree. It's tremendous joy when there is the sweetness in relationships with family and friends. It is also true, as you know, equally so, that there may be no greater sorrow in life than the sorrow that is brought about in relationships with family and friends. No greater joy and no greater sorrow. No greater highs and no greater lows. No greater ups and no greater downs. Relationships with family and friends, especially when you consider them in light of your relationship with the Lord, are the most important relationships that you have. Therefore, it is incumbent upon all Christians to seriously consider how to handle these delicate relationships. And delicate they are. How do you handle them? How do you handle these relationships? Do you rejoice in them or do you shy away from them? Do you experience the richness of these relationships or do you recoil because they're a horrible drudgery to you? What would you say is the way you want to treat and be treated by your family and friends? Those are important questions. And if you remember... When we spoke from Proverbs 25, verses 16 to 28, we talked similarly about how and how not to treat others. This morning, I want to give you six means, six means to treat your family and your friends from here in Proverbs 27, verses 9 to 16. Follow along with me as I read Proverbs 27, verses 9 to 16. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for an adulterous woman hold him in pledge. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. 
a constant dripping on a day of steady rain, and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Now contained within verses 9 to 16 are, as I said, six means to treating your family and friends. Of course, this is not by any means, uh, not all that would be in a list, but these are a few, six of them that I've discovered here. Let me give them to you on the front end and then we'll go through each of them individually. Number one, this is a means by which you can treat your family and friends and that is by providing sweet persuasion. Verse 9. Secondly, by practicing swift partnership. Verse 10. Thirdly, by proving sound parenting. Verse 11. Number four, by planning safe prudence, verse 12. And in verses 13 and 14, number five, by placing sure penalties. And then lastly, number six, in verses 15 and 16, by pondering stubborn people. The six means by providing sweet persuasion, by practicing swift partnership, by proving sound parenting, by planning safe prudence, by placing sure penalties, and by pondering stubborn people. I put them in alliterated form, of course, so you might be more easily able to remember them because these are very, very important biblical principles from God's Word. Let's dig into this. This is going to be good. Number one, number one, the first means by which you could rightly treat your family and friends, according to verse 9, is by providing sweet persuasion. Sweet persuasion. Verse 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so man's counsel is sweet to his friend. What's the metaphor that Solomon wants to use here? Well, he's talking, of course, about oil and perfume. And if you know anything about the ancient world, you know how important oil and incense, in this case, or translated here rightly, I think, as perfume, was to the ancient people. You remember that in that culture, what we would call a Mediterranean culture or climate, There was in some very hot days, and they had many of those in that sort of um, agrarian culture, yes, but many hot days to be sure, a lot of hot, sweaty, dirty bodies. And if you've ever been over in Europe, which of course isn't in the Middle East, but is closer than we are, you have noticed something, haven't you? And that is that often in European cultures, to say nothing, as I said, of Mediterranean climates, the Middle East, for instance, uh, there is not a great deal of deodorant that is often used. And if, for instance, you were to go onto an elevator and you were to be in that elevator for any length of time, hopefully, Lord willing, not that the elevator ever breaks down, you would be in a climate in which you would smell a lot of bodily odors. And it would not be sweet to you. And what Solomon is saying is something like this. Oil, in this case olive oil, 
would be something that would be used because often someone's hair would be ratty and dirty from walking around in that climate and culture. And when that person came in, as a sign of love, as a sign of sweetness, that olive oil would be poured on their head. This is very, very common. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Very familiar, of course, the 23rd Psalm. But did you remember what Psalm 23.5 says? Psalm 23.5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Listen to this. You have anointed my head with oil. You see, that was a custom in the ancient world. In fact, look over at Psalm 133. As a sign of unity among brothers, Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2, says this. Psalm 133, 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Verse 2, it is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. And some of you would say, that's yikes. In our culture, we wouldn't do anything like that. Number one, because we wouldn't have a need to do so, right? Cleanliness is something that we don't often take for granted, most of us. And we shower and we bathe and we wet our hair and we comb our hair. It's not dirty, it's not smelly, it's not ratty to us most of the time. And so we don't need things like that. But in that culture, they did. Look at Psalm 141. Even from a negative perspective, in one sense, Psalm 141.5. Listen to David. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. In other words, telling me what I need to hear, even from the righteous. It is oil upon the head. Do not not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. Even sometimes those you don't like or who may not always be your friends can smite you with kindness, like oil on the head. In other words, it was something that they looked forward to. And this idea of perfume, probably again incense, but taking some of those spices and adding them together, putting them together to make something sweet-smelling. And that sometimes would be poured on you as well, because there could be some severe body odor. And when you walked into a home and you had smelly feet because you had sandals on and you were walking around in the dirt and dust of the city, Uh, someone as a slave might come, of course, and take a bowl or a basin and they would take water and they would wash your feet because they would be smelly and dirty. They would take oil and put it on your head so that your hair would be sweet smelling or at least nice and presentable. And then they would take some of this perfume, some of this... um, folded incense, as it were, into some kind of a chalice or, or bottle, and they would take that and they would give it to you and you would place it upon yourself so that you wouldn't be offensive to your hosts. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. Oil and perfume, verse 9, make the heart glad. You don't want to be offensive. It's nice. It's a nice aroma. 
So, he says, is a man's sweet counsel to his friend. I call it sweet persuasion. Counsel. It's the idea of instruction. Someone is coming to you, a friend, and they're needing your advice. And you want to give them sweet persuasion. You want to do everything you can to give them the right advice. And when you do, and when they receive it, it is, metaphorically speaking, as soothing as someone who has prepared your head with oil and given you perfume for your smelly body. In fact, this word here, uh, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend, has been emendated a little bit, been changed a little bit. Sweet to his soul, his friend's soul. That advice hits you right in the right spot. It, It is sweet persuasion to you. It's like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21. The wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Verse 23. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. My friends, one of the greatest means that you can reach out to your family and friends and they to you is to provide for you sweet persuasion, sweet counsel, instruction, advice, good words, especially when you desperately need it. It's sweet to your soul. It's in that culture just like the oil and the perfume that makes a smelly, stinky body smell sweet. You want your friends to scent you, to scent you with the sweet persuasion of a right word spoken in a right circumstance so that you are genuinely helped. I was, I was with someone recently, and we were praying for that person, and we were giving that person advice. And I remember a couple of times specifically that person said, that's very, very helpful. You don't know how helpful this is. Thank you so much. My soul is weary and I'm genuinely helped by this. You could just tell by the words that they were speaking that it was so sweet to them. They were being persuaded rightly. It was counsel that was rejoicing their heart. That's how you want to treat your family and friends. Do you do that? Is that, is that how you treat them? If you do, it's some of the, the greatest familial relationships, spiritually with friends or physically with, with blood relatives. You're able with sweet counsel to rejoice their heart, and that's the way they ought to be treated. That's the way they want to be treated oftentimes, not always the case. And it's not always the case that you're going to have family and friends who are going to be receptive to that. But when they are, their heart is rejoicing. It's sweet to their soul. That's, that's one of the greatest means by which you can treat family and friends, by, by providing them sweet persuasion. Number two, number two, by practicing swift partnership. Swift partnership. Look at verse 10. It's a very interesting proverb. It has 
sort of uh, three components aligned with it. Here it is, verse 10. Do not forsake your own friend. That's number one. Number two, or your father's friend. And here's number three. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. And then here's sort of a, the proverb based upon those particulars. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. Now we have to unpack this a little bit because it may be a little confusing, especially with a couple of other proverbs that we've already covered, and we'll have to explain that. I think the sense of verse 10, as I said, is threefold. Number one, do not forsake your own friend. In other words, what's one of the greatest means by which you can minister to your family and friends? Well, number one, don't forsake them. That's very clear. Do not forsake your own friend. That's number one. Number two, he says, or your father's friend. Who is that? Probably not a relative because it's a father's friend. It's probably someone who's been close to your family for a long time. They've been a friend, maybe a a good friend, maybe a best friend to your father, your father's best buddy. You have those. I have those. My children know that I have certain friends who stick closer to me than a brother. They know who they are. They always know they can go to any one of those friends and receive assistance in our family if I'm not able to help them. They know. They know their names. They know their telephone numbers. They know who to call. They know that those friends of mine are going to do anything humanly possible and in God's prerogative to help if I'm not able to do so. So it's to your advantage, family member, not to forsake not only your own friend, that's obvious, that's elementary, but your father's friend. Because in the day of your calamity, you're going to need help. And if the family is fractured, if the family is not living all together as a unit by way of direct family or extended family, you're going to need help from more than just your family. It was usually, of course, in these days and in that century that the family unit, both the immediate family and the extended family, were were usually all together. But that was not always the case. And maybe this is a proverb for when the family is not all together. Maybe for some reason the family has been separated. Maybe brothers are in locations where it's not easy to get to. In that time and in that age, transportation was not easy. Communication was very scarce, very sketchy. And you relied not only upon your own family, and especially if your family was extended beyond their ability to get back quickly in a day of calamity, you needed your friends. You needed next-door neighbors. You needed your father's friend. You needed your own friends to help you. And that's what I think Solomon is driving toward here. That's why he says, Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. It could be that your brother... He's not able to help you. Maybe he wants to, or maybe there's even a fracturing spiritually in the relationship of your blood relatives, and maybe your brother doesn't want to lift a finger to help you. 
And, and maybe you need that friend to come alongside you. you. You're in calamity. Notice it says, do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Now that may mean that your brother is again in an extended geographical time or place away and you're not able to immediately ask him for help. He's not there. He can't provide it. But you need a friend who can. Better than just trying in your calamity to eschew all help until you get to your brother Seek all the help you can from all the friends you can because you're going to need it. Better is a neighbor who is near in locale than a brother who's far away. That's probably the buttressing of why this proverb is here. Your brother's away. Friends are here. Don't forsake them. And maybe it's even a love your neighbor as yourself kind of proverb. They've had a day of calamity. You haven't forsaken them. You've come alongside them. You've helped them. And now you are in your day of calamity and they need your help and they're going to do anything to help you. So don't forsake them. If they're in a day of calamity and you say, no, I can't help you. I'm busy. I don't have time or I don't have the resources. I can't help you. And you're selfish and you don't help them and you've forsaken them. Guess what's going to happen in your day of calamity? They're not going to be able to help you or they don't want to. It's a great proverb. Look at chapter 18, verse 24. This may be, this particular proverb in chapter 27 may be right along the lines of what Proverbs 18, verse 24 is saying. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. In other words, if you have a ton of friends and they all can't be intimate friends to help you, and if you have too many of them, you might come to ruin. But there is a friend, singular who sticks closer than a brother. Don't forsake him. Don't forsake him. Have a swift partnership with them. In your calamity, you're going to need them. In their calamity, they're going to need you. Stick to them. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, someone's immediately going to ask me, but wait a minute. Chapter 17 of Proverbs, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's true. That's true. But maybe this particular brother who's born for adversity, maybe he's not physically near you enough to be able to minister to you, to help you. Yes, he's your blood blood relative. Yes, he's your brother. You would expect him to help you because you're kin. You are relatives. You are brother and brother. But maybe he's far away. And maybe this particular proverb in chapter 27 is covering the base of a brother who can't physically be where you are to help you. A friend sticks closer than a brother in the sense that, of course, if your brother's not able to help you, a friend is sticking to you like glue is going to help you in the day of your calamity. Yes, we need swift partnerships. That's how you treat others and that's how you want to be treated. Is that what you do? How many people in your life would say something like this? I know that if I were down, if I were out, if I were troubled, if I were burdened, if I were in a calamity, I could look to you for help and you'd be there. How many people would say when they were in that condition that your name comes to their mind? You'd say, well, I, I would hope so. Well, ask them. Seek them out. Your, your best friends, ask them, do you see me as a person who if you were to experience great calamity, whatever it may be, that you know 
I would do anything I could to help you, humanly speaking and in God's providence, you might be interested in what they might say. And if they would say, I have no questions about that at all. I would have no concerns about that at all. I know you. I know your heart. And in fact, I've even seen you do that with others. I would have no doubt that you would do that for me. That's a friend. That's a friend. There's a swift partnership. And when I call it swift, it's obviously something related to this. There's a calamity. And a calamity comes upon you suddenly. And when it comes upon you suddenly, you need someone to swiftly come alongside in partnership, fellowship in that adversity. They need your resources. They need your time. They need your effort. They need your money. This is, this is an excellent means on how to treat your family and your friends and how you would want them to treat you. Number three. Number three. By proving sound parenting. What do you mean by proving sound parenting? Verse 11. Be wise, my son. You've heard that before. Solomon likes to use that phrase. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad. How might that son make Solomon's heart glad? Here it is. That I may reply to him who reproaches me. So what does that mean? Well, presumably in this scenario, someone has come along to Solomon and he is a person who we might call a critic. Because actually, the word reproach means one who taunts, a one who brings an insult. We'll just call him a critic. And maybe that critic comes along and he says, hey, Solomon, and maybe with Solomon, in some years of his life, we might say, would uh, have justification for a critic to come, right? What are you doing? How's your parenting going? Solomon, of course, trying to give his sons wise advice, and he says, my son, make my heart glad. Well, how could I make your heart glad, Father? What could I do, Dad? Well, when my critics come and they insult my parenting. That's it. That's what he means. When, when the harsh taunting comes and they criticize my parenting and they say, do you think that your children are righteous? You think they're doing the right thing? You think they're on the right path? Well, just look at them. Look at what they're doing. You call yourself a good dad? You call yourself a successful Christian mother? And it will come. Or maybe it's coming from the unbelieving world. And they don't care anything about the righteousness, but they just want to make hypocritical insults and taunts. And they want to levy all kinds of charges against you. It's going to come, and when it comes, you want all those charges to be false. But sometimes you can't do anything about that, right? You, 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 you perceive that you've done what you could do, and the son or daughter does what they do, and your heart is crestfallen. And so on the front end of that, in a preemptory way, with, with a proactive teaching and with an instruction, you say something like this, My son, my son, please, on the front end here, now that you're 5 or 7 or 13 or 21, please, let, let me just implore you once again. If I haven't said this, and of course the son is saying, Dad, you've said it a million times, let me just say it again. Make my heart glad by your obedience. Prove 
my righteous, godly, holy parenting in your life because the reproacher is going to come and when he comes, he's going to taunt and he's going to hurl his accusations and I want you to prove by the parenting that I provided that all of his charges are false. That's what he's saying. Be wise. Be wise. Walk in godly wisdom. Walk according to the Word of God. Make my heart glad. Make your dad blessed, happy, joyful, fulfilled by doing the right thing. If my kids have heard any one thing from the lips of their parents, it's this. Do the right thing. Make the right choices. Don't go there. Don't do that. Do do this. Plunge your eyes, your head into the Word of God. Memorize the Scripture. Love God's Word. Come to church. Worship the Lord. Talk to others about the Lord. Serve the Lord, etc., etc., etc. I've told them a million times, and of course I've told them a million times not to exaggerate. Please do it. Please do it. Please don't do this. Please do that. They know it by rote. Because I want them, not just for my own selfish sake, I want them for the Lord, but of course as a godly parent, I want them to be wise, to make me glad, to make their mother glad, and ultimately when the reproach comes from a critic outside the church or inside the church, I want those false accusations to be exactly that, false. Charles Bridges writes about this verse. This is what he says. Should not the children of the church ponder this deep responsibility to carry such a profession as may answer him that reproacheth and stop the mouth ever ready to open with taunts against the gospel? This is, this is a verse about the gospel, my friends. This is about your parenting and your children proving your parenting by not reproaching the gospel. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it's in Old Testament terms, right? It's Old Testament language, but it's the same thing. It's the unity of the Testaments. This is, this is a person who wants to come and reproach the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And you want your children to so prove your righteous, holy biblically-based parenting that when the reproaches come, they fall on deaf ears. That's what you want. In fact, you want this. You don't have to turn there. But listen to this. Remember Psalm 127, that great psalm that talks about, of course, the family? Listen to what it says in verses 4 and 5, Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And then this, verse 5, How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Or, how about the end of Proverbs 31 with the Proverbs 31 woman? What, is it, what does it say from her children about her, verse 28. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you exceed them all. That's, that's how you want to prove your parenting and your husband-wife relationship. You want your children to say, I, I have nothing bad to say about my parents. They did what was right. They weren't perfect, 
but they tried to do the right things. They tried to instill the right principles. They tried to make the right choices. And I saw that habit being formed in them over the course of their Christian lives. And it was instilled in me over the course of my Christian life. And I don't want to reproach them in any way. I don't want to bring reproach upon Christ in any way. So much so that when the reproaches come... They fall on deaf ears. Someone will taunt. Someone will hurl their accusations. But in the end, make my heart glad, my son, by being wise, so that when the reproaches come, there's nothing bad that they can say about you, about us, about our Christ. Number four. Number four. By planning safe prudence. By planning safe prudence. Verse 12. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Now this is, by the way, almost identical, few stylistic grammatical differences, but almost identical to the proverb in Proverbs 22.3. There the Bible says, The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. You see, almost identical. And I think the sense of both of these proverbs are that a wise, discerning, prudent man, a Christian, sees evil in his path and he plans a way around it. In other words, in his life, in his heart, he's prudent, you see, and he sees evil ahead on his path, you know, like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, and he sees it And he knows that it's evil. He's discerning enough. I think this is a proverb about discernment. He sees it enough that he knows that if he continues on that particular path, he's going to run right into that evil and it's going to overcome him. And he's not going to be able to avoid it. And so he begins right now to plan, to strategize, to do what he can right now not not right on the precipice of the evil, not on the slippery slope toward the evil, not on the greased slide uh, where the evil is right at that moment in time, but he sees, he plans, he strategizes, and the Bible says he hides himself. Maybe something like this. He protects himself. He sees it and he protects himself. He's a Christian, Christian man, This is a person, whether it's what you're doing to counsel your family or your friend or your friend or family, they're looking at your life and they're seeing you as a noble Christian warrior and you are seeing this evil in front of you and they see you working out, planning, strategizing to avoid it and you do. As over against the latter part of that proverb, but the naive, the naive, that's the non-Christian, that's the unbeliever proceeds and what? Pays the penalty. He's fallen. Falls flat. Falls in the dungeon. Falls in the pit. And of course, ultimately falls into hell. But a prudent man sees evil and hides himself. Proverbs talk a lot about prudent men. Chapter 12, verse 23 says this, A prudent man conceals knowledge. That means he stores it up in his heart, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. 
Chapter 13, verse 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge. In other words, again, he's storing it up. He's putting it in his mind. He's memorizing and meditating on the Word of God. But a fool displays folly. Chapter 14, verse 15. The naive believes everything. You ask the naive person, what do you believe? And he says, everything. Everything. Tell me what to believe and I'll believe it. Tell me what not to believe and I won't believe it. But the sensible man, verse 15, considers his steps. That's just like that planning, strategizing. He considers his steps. A wise man, verse 16, is cautious and turns away from evil. He protects himself. He turns away. He runs in the other direction. But a fool is arrogant and careless. Verse 18, the naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. Just proverb after proverb after proverb about the prudent man. He's planning something. And what, what is he planning? Safe prudence. Safe wisdom. Safe knowledge. He's not going to get caught. He's a person who when he looks at his family and friends and he says something like this, but, but if I do that, I'm going to injure them. I'm going to injure them. I'm going to hurt them. I don't want to hurt my family like that. I don't want to treat my friends like that. They look up to me. I'm a model. I'm an example. I don't want to do that. Uh, To do that, to foresee the danger in that right now causes me, rather than to run to it, run away from it so that I can protect myself from that evil so no reproaches come upon me or my relationship with Christ or damages my relationship with my family or friends. I've told you this before. I go through a little checklist in my mind on a mental level that when sin is encroaching, when, when sin is just around the corner, I try to go through this little checklist and I say things like this. What would this do in my relationship to the Lord? What would this do to my relationship to my wife? What would this do to my kids? It would kill them. It would crush them. I can't do this. I can't even think that. I can't be involved in that action. What would this do to my mother? Well, what would this do to my colleagues in the ministry? What would this do to my mentor? What would this do to to those who have poured their life into me? I can't be involved in things like that. I can't even think about doing something like that. That would be evil. That would be wicked. Stay away from that. Don't do that. Why are you even thinking that? Who are you? That's the kind of self-talk that you ought to be having with yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You're dumb for even thinking that, let alone doing that. What would this do to all the people around you? You're going to crush your family and friends. Just go through mentally in your mind what the looks on fellow members of your congregation, your friends, your family, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, those who've discipled you, those who look up to you. Just imagine in your mind their faces if they were to hear that you were involved in this or that. Just look, just look in their faces. Project out in your mind the, the, the crumpled, crinkled up frowns, the disgust, the, the, the absolute dour countenance of every person, the shock, the, the rejection, the pain, the tears, the crying, the disgust. And you know, folks, once you do that for about five minutes, you're going to say to yourself, I'm not doing that. 
That would be utter ruin. That would be foolishness. I'm not going to do that. That's what the naive people do. The wise people do. Here's what they do. They're prudent. And they make a safe passage away and around the evil. That's what you ought to do. Best way you can learn how to treat your family and friends in this regard is as a Christian to actively plan and strategize your way far around the evil. Protect yourself. Number five, by placing sure penalties. Oh, this is amazing. Verses 13 and 14. Take his garment, and that may be, of course, the his, a reference to the naive, could refer to the preceding verse, verse 12, or maybe the choice between being someone who's wise and prudent and someone who's being naive. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. And then verse 14, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. Now, the first part of these two Proverbs, that is verse 13, is almost identical to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, which says, take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners hold him in pledge. One's a masculine form, foreigners. One's a feminine form, our verse, Proverbs 27, 13. That's why it says an adulterous woman. Other than that, they're almost virtually the same. And here's the principle. Here's the principle. Here it is. Don't ever promise to repay a stranger's loans. That's the principle. Don't ever promise to repay a stranger's loans. Look at verse 13 again. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. Surety. It's a guarantor. It's somebody who's guaranteeing that when a stranger comes to him and says, hey, I need some money. I need a loan. I need to borrow some money for you, from you. And of course, your first reaction ought to be something like this. Pal, fella, I don't even know you, right? Which means I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you my hard-earned money because I don't know who you are. I don't know that you have the ability at all because of my lack of knowledge of you that you're going to pay that loan to the one to whom you borrowed. Because a guarantor, a surety, especially for young people in the congregation who don't know those words, a surety or a guarantor is a person, we might say in our parlance, our language today, who co-signs, who promises to pay if the person that they're co-signing for, guaranteeing, does not come through with the paying off of their obligation. Someone says, I guarantee that if Sally does not pay Johnny back, I, Fred, will pay Sally's obligation to Johnny. And Solomon says, when it comes to money, when it comes to guaranteeing a loan, please do not attempt or promise to pay back a loan from somebody that you don't know. Because what's the danger inherent in that? Because you don't know them, you don't know that they're going to do it. They could default on the loan. And, and the, the least, Solomon says, that you have to do is to take some collateral. And what collateral is that? Take his coat. Take the guarantor's coat so that 
if the person who is asking for the money doesn't pay it back and the guarantor doesn't pay it back, then at least you have something in return. So take the garment. And in that day and age, taking somebody's garment on a very, very cold, wintry night could have meant death. Somebody needed a jacket, a a garment. They need to be protected from the bitter cold. You take that away. In one sense, you take their life. It's a severe, sure penalty. But the prior principle is this. Don't get yourself caught in agreeing to pay a loan for somebody who's a stranger. That's what it says there. When he becomes surety for a stranger. And then notice our text. And for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. Hey, this is a totally different ballgame than, than chapter 20, verse 6. Totally different ballgame now. Because what he's saying is this. An adulterous woman comes along and he tries to seduce a person. Uh, she tries to seduce a person. And he falls for it. And the adulterous woman then says, in addition to what she's providing, sexual favors, she says something like this, Oh, and you know, I need, that, I need some rent money. I need a loan. I need to care for this or that. Uh, Can you give me some financial help? I'm giving you something. You need to give me something. And the person says, well, I don't have the money myself, but maybe I can find somebody who can give me the money and I'll give it to you and then I'll pay them back and then maybe ultimately you can pay me back. But what happens with the seductress, the adulteress? She's never going to pay you back. She's never going to do that. So what you have to do is that if, if the guarantor, the person who's going to give ultimately the money, if there is a defaulting on this, everybody's going to lose. So you've got to hold him in pledge. And this is not a good thing. This is a debt. So if you're going to guarantee money from somebody who's indebted to an adulteress, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Hold him in pledge, that means hold him to his indebtedness. That guarantor, he can't pay it back either. If he can't pay it back because he was concocted in a scheme by somebody else who's sort of being blackmailed by the adulteress, come on. This is a recipe for financial disaster. Don't be involved in that. And you know what Solomon is doing in the background of all of this? You remember Proverbs 5? You remember Proverbs 7? He says continually, don't go with her Don't be seduced by the adulteress. She's going to do this and she's going to do that. And several times in those chapters, it's something like this. And she's going to take your money. She's going to take what you have. And now you're emboldened to her. You're indebted to her because of the favors. And then somebody comes to you and they give you this heart-rending story. Oh, I need this money. I've gotten myself in a jam and I need your help. And what Solomon is saying is, Don't listen to him because he's listening to her. Don't do it. If you listen to him and he's a stranger or he is indebted to an adulterous woman, this is disaster. You you can't do that. If you do that, then ultimately you're a fool yourself. You're you're a fool. And Solomon is going to say, don't listen to the adulteress. Listen to me. Listen to your father. Don't give out money that you don't know if they have the ability to pay you back, especially with someone who's being blackmailed himself. In fact, maybe even if somehow he does get his money back, 
Do you think he's going to pay off that loan? Do you really think he's going to do that? In fact, you don't even know him. You don't even know who he is. He's a stranger. And now he's somehow got himself into this deep, dark, committed relationship with somebody else. You think he's going to pay you that money? Do not be a guarantor for that. Place sure penalties. And what are the penalties? Take the jacket. Take the jacket. In other words, make it serious. Hold him accountable is what Solomon is saying. If for some reason you find yourself in that mess, then you better find a way to make sure that you're not out this money. Don't do it in the first place. But by all means, hold him in pledge. Hold him to it. Place sure penalties if this thing does not come off. That's what he's saying. Now here's another penalty. Look at verse 14. This is someone who comes along, and I've heard, by the way, people sort of quoting this verse about somebody who sort of wakes up and is too loud in the morning. Have you ever heard people use a verse like that? You know, somebody's too loud in the morning. Good morning! How are you? So good to see you! And you, you wonder, why are they so chipper? Right? You think, if they had, you know, 14 rounds of coffee already... And then you quote this verse, it will be reckoned to him a curse. Don't speak with a loud voice in the morning. This doesn't have anything to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with that, right? So don't quote that verse anymore. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Verse 14. The person who is speaking with a loud voice is a hypocrite. They're a hypocrite. They're coming to you and they're trying to receive something from you or they're trying to do something to you. He who blesses, blesses in quotes. That's what you think they're doing. They're coming to bless you. They're coming with something and they come with a loud voice early in the morning. And it is tinged with all kinds of hypocrisy. Maybe it's a deal. Maybe it's some kind of sweet deal. It's already talked about money in the previous two verses. Maybe it's some kind of uh, relationship. Whatever it is, not specified. Someone comes and they come with this chipper attitude. They come with what appears to be a blessing. And it comes early in the morning. They're, they're, they're Johnny on the spot. They're knocking on the door. Uh, they're ready to give you whatever it is they think you need and which will enhance the relationship and you do not need to be snookered by that. Don't be deceived. In fact, if you know anything about them, if you know anything about their character, and if you have any inkling that this person is hypocritical, hypocrisy is afoot, then place a sure penalty of a curse upon that person. Not, I curse you in the name of... There's nothing like that. But you say something like this, I'm not going to be involved in this. And if you come to me again, I'll alert the authorities. If you try to do this again, consequences will come your way. Curse was a very, very serious thing in that culture. Could mean severe consequences, imprisonment, some judicial action, some action on the part of the elders of the people. And if someone comes with the hypocrisy of smiles blessing when really what they're trying to do is curse you. You see, they're not really bringing a blessing, they're bringing a curse. And they're speaking well, 
and they're speaking well of you, and it's early in the morning, and they're ready. Don't believe it. Do not believe it. Safe, secure, sure penalties go to the hypocrites. Don't be one. Don't get involved in guaranteeing money for people you don't know, total strangers. Those who would hoodwink you as adulteresses, don't do it. These go together. Sure penalties. You know what both of those verses are saying? Accountability in relationships. You see, all of the means to have good relationships, a lot of them are positive. They sure are. You know, sweet persuasion. You want to be able to provide the right words. You want to be able to have all of the good stuff, the positive, the proactive. But there's also the negative. There's also the reactive. There's also the accountability in relationships because people in this world are hypocrites and they will come to you and they will try to to do all kinds of things to fool you. Don't buy it. A sixth and final before we close. Verses 15 and 16. What are the means whereby you treat your family and friends? By pondering stubborn people. Look at verses 15 and 16. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. I think that's so apt. I think that's a good translation. It's a little bit of a debate about the latter part of verse 16, grasping oil with his right hand, but I think that's a good one. I think that's a good translation. We'd say something today like nailing jello to the, to the wall. Elusive. And, and what is it? Well, he uses that metaphor of a constant dripping on a day of steady rain. You ever had that? You're looking outside and you just see that constant dripping on that same spot and it makes the same sound and it just drives you batty. Well, so is a contentious woman. Just like that constant dripping of a steady rain. You can't restrain her. You can't rein her in, no pun intended. You can't bring her to a place where she understands the contention is absolutely driving you stark raving mad. Stop it! No stopping it. You cannot restrain her. If you could restrain her, you could restrain the wind. If you could restrain her, you could actually catch oil in your hand. You could nail the proverbial jello to the wall. You can't. And has not Solomon already said in chapter 19 about this contentious woman? And by the way, when I say by pondering stubborn people, he's not just focusing or centering in on the woman alone, the female as the only one in the universe who is contentious? Not at all. In fact, if we were to take a survey, I wonder how many more men, more males would be contentious than females. I don't know. Proverbs 19, we're probably bit with the same cloth. Proverbs 19, verse 13, here's what it says. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Yes. Chapter 25, verse 24, it is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. 
Wow. You've probably seen her. You've probably talked to him. You, you may be him or her. Contentious. Contentious. Quarreling. Disputing. Arguing. Combative. Always talking. Always pushing. Poking. Prodding. Pricking. Any other P I can think of? Always. Constant dripping. You just want to move to the corner of the most desolate place in the house to be away from him or her. So, I think what Solomon is actually doing here in those other Proverbs I shared with you about the contentious woman, it's the one you already have. It's the husband or wife you already have. It's the family member or friend you already have. You're locked in. Tragically, you're locked in. I think here in chapter 27, he might even be challenging his son to project in the future and say, is that what you want? Is that what you want? Because notice, constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind. If you would do it in the future, is that what you want? Is that what you would want to do? Is that who you would want to live with, be married to? Well then, if you do, go ahead. You'll pay. So, outline point, pondering stubborn people. Ponder this. Think about it. Warn yourself. There could be contentious people, family or friends, or yourself, or your wife, or your husband. Ponder. Ponder before it ever happens. Steer clear of it by every means because to be with a contentious person is like that rain that continually drips and drips and drips and it drives you crazy. Quarreling, fighting, talking. You just can't get it concluded. The argument never stops. He just keeps going. She just won't stop. I think I have to go to the corner of the roof just to get away. Can't do it. She's always here. He's always around. And he's always got his mouth open. And she's always saying something. I tell you, that's no life. That is no life. And that is why Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, saved Jesus Christ himself, is going to say to his sons, Ponder before you ever get into a relationship like that. My friends, these are six solid means by which you can treat your family and friends and how you want them to treat you. I pray that we all would do a better job in looking at these means and carrying them out. Let's pray together. Father, as we attempt to provide sweet persuasion and practice swift partnership and prove sound parenting and plan safe prudence and place sure penalties and ponder stubborn people, we are so much better off at our attempts to enjoy relationships with family and friends. Oh, 
We need these principles. Thank you for them. Apply them to our hearts as only the Holy Spirit can. Allow us to live them out for the glory of God, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the power and by the enablement of the Holy Spirit so that you are pleased and that the joy, the heightened joy, the greatest joy of our relationships with family and friends is realized. Deliver us from the greatest downs in order to give us the greatest ups. So we would have the highest highs and be delivered from the lowest lows. We know these relationships are here. They're here to stay. They're relationships worth making. But we ought to be warned, and we have been, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.